0: Hello Green Charters, welcome to another episode here on the Green Living Chat Podcast. My name is David Awusimensa, I'm your host here on the podcast. Today we we'll continue our journey on Nature in Focus as we take you straight to Ghana talking about the role of the private sector in waste management with the one and only Cody Aziz Nash with Environment 360. Cordy started Environment 360 in 2014 to support the creation of circular economies with an economic and environmental impact. During the past 8 years, she has become an expert in supporting informal sector plastic waste collectors, also known as waste pickers. She was very instrumental in creating the Ghana Recycling Initiative by private enterprise and one of the founders of plastic recyclers and aggregators association of ghana where she served as a president until june 2021 she is very passionate about working with all stakeholders along the value chain to create an inclusive waste management that creates jobs for the youth and women in her amazing recent initiative the Circular innovation hub where she seeks to move women waste makers from collectors to innovators using an open source modular recycling technology. And in today's conversation where we dive more into the work she's doing and the impact of her company in Ghana's waste management, we dive into her story getting to know a little bit more about her and her transition to Ghana and how she turned her passion from communication youth empowerment, and business into waste management. We talked about the role of women in waste management value chain, where we have gone wrong, and what we can do better in moving forward. Now we dive into the problems and challenges we are facing with waste management in Ghana, and what Environment 360 is doing to contribute significantly to improve this sector. This and more in today's conversation, and I just can't wait to share this conversation with you but before we do that cody was recently featured in a bloomberg article on the topic west africa is drowning in plastic who is responsible this article is very very significant and it opened doors to several conversations find this article in the show notes and this conversation on today's podcast will definitely be an interesting follow-up on what the article pointed out in the waste management sector now who else is ready to dive into this conversation so grab your coffee and see you on the other side This is the Green Living Chat Podcast. Here, we define sustainability, educate, and discuss feasible solutions to achieve a regenerative ecosystem. In a world where sustainability has become a cliche and misused in practice, we bring you inspiring stories from the industry, research and development, and all stakeholders in between. And together, we can promote the sustainability agenda across the globe. This podcast is proudly produced and sponsored by our team at Eco Amid Solutions. In Ghana. We come your way with new episodes this and every Sunday at 6 p.m. GMT. So, dear Green Chatters, let's get started. Hi, Cody. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Green Living Chat podcast. Citing that you're here, I've been chasing. To speak to you, and I'm really thrilled to have you today. How's your day going? And welcome.
1: Yes, it's going well, and I also <laughs> definitely want to thank you for your patience because this is long overdue. Oh goodness! Uh, I think we started touching bases last year, uh, but as nature would have it, you know, I was having a baby, so it was a little bit hectic for me. Um, so happy to be here. Um, to join you to discuss everything green in Ghana uh, and what we're doing at Environment 360.
0: Thank you so much for making time, actually. And really, congratulations on your baby. Huh. It's it's such a precious gift, and I'm sure you're super excited. Your life has changed um, since last year. Yeah, it's exciting. I really can't wait to dive into your story because I read an article that you wrote, I think, in 2012, Um, about thinking of trading your life in America from the tough um, term of Africa. And it got me thinking that, oh, so you've been through a very interesting transition. I'm a little bit very interested in your background. How was your childhood growing up, I'm sure, in America? And um, how was it for you? What are some of the things that you remember from your childhood experience that you can sort of connect with what you're doing right now?
1: Yeah. So I grew up mainly in a small town called Peoria, Illinois. Uh, I then later moved to Memphis when I was 16. Um, it's interesting because my father's actually from Sierra Leone, but we have family in Ghana.
0: Wow. So people,
1: so this is sort of the, the Ghana connection. Um, but as you know, Sierra Leone experienced war. So most of my family Um, left Sierra Leone during the war time. So some people came to the U.S., some people went to Ghana, some people went to the Gambia. Um, So we're sort of spread out in those uh, major areas. Uh, One thing, I think my father is also an entrepreneur. In fact, I come from a line of entrepreneurs. Uh, They say sometimes it's in the blood. You inherit things (laughs) from your ancestors. Uh, My father's family are mainly entrepreneurs. So my grandmother was a seamstress. I had an aunt that had a large shipping company company that used to ship tobacco um, along the coast of West Africa. So we've been doing this for generations. Uh, Early on, I think one thing my father really instilled in us was work ethic. Uh, He actually owned a church's chicken growing up. Uh, So from the age of 10, we would actually spend our summers uh, working for my father. And then that's how we would earn our money. For the school year and we would put it in our bank account and then this would be what we did our personal activities with so i think hard work was really instilled from my father i think also the principle of work smarter and not harder um so don't necessarily take the hardest path but really sit down um, to plan and look at what is the smartest path to getting um to where you want and i think the greatest thing my father actually Um, really instilled upon me is that America is not your home. Uh, Mm -hmm. My father has always been very passionate about the fact that um, though uh, his children were born in America, we were not really Americans. And I think this is something that really uh, sat with me um, throughout my childhood and and sort of followed me and ignited me in a lot of my pursuits and interests uh, as I grew older. Um, Before I moved to Ghana, I actually worked for Congress, uh, where I started the Congressional African Staff Association with a few other congressional staff that were descendants of Africans or first generation, um, as we often call ourselves, also Africans. (laughs) So um, I think these key principles really sort of influenced me. So when I actually got the opportunity uh, at 30, uh, when the House transitioned from uh, Democrat to Republican in 2011, um, I decided to give it a go. Uh, And it's actually really interesting how I ended up in Ghana, because as mentioned, my father's from Sierra Leone. So I was just going to move to Sierra Leone. That was the the first thing I was thinking of. Um, But I have become really good friends with the Ghanaian Chancery uh, in DC. And he says, so Cordy, what are you going to do? And I said, you know, I think I'm going to move to Sierra Leone and he said you know have you ever checked out Ghana and I was like no I have some family there but I've never been there he's like I think you should check out Ghana um so his father actually owned a hotel here so they put me up for three weeks uh I came it was actually supposed to be a week trip yeah I ended up saying three weeks uh I went back to the U.S. packed up my belongings sold everything off and then I moved back to Ghana uh 90 days later and I've been here ever since, showed up with three suitcases. Uh, And it just so happened to work out well for me.
0: I just knew you had such a beautiful story, really. I can listen to you all day about this story. And when I read this article, I was wondering, I mean, before this conversation, I was always trying to find... The Ghanaian thing in your name, but I just couldn't find it. So now getting to know the story, it's it's just amazing. And I ask the story most of the time because we we have a lot of young people listening to the podcast and we always want to let them know that the people that they are listening to have been through a certain transition. They didn't just get up to start, you know, saving the world and doing this. So It's always interesting to share your background with the people to sort of understand where you came from and what you're doing right now so that it can also respect and really acknowledge the process because it's, it's very, very important. But now we've gotten to know how you got here uh, in Ghana, but how was this transition? How did you then end up into um, Environment 360? Because, oh, probably um, just, you know, trying to save the world or sustainability and other things because you had a different, a totally different background.
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting that you asked that. You know, it was really just, I guess, a stroke of luck being in the right place at the right time. You know, it's so interesting. Um, I'm a Christian. I think God has really sort of directed my path in his own way. Uh, even years before moving to Ghana, typically whenever I do a big move, I get a tattoo. Uh, and I remember when I was moving from Mississippi to D.C., I actually got Nyame uh tattooed on my hip. Um, And it was so interesting because uh, from getting that tattoo like years later i remember sitting in a, a dentist office at one point in time and i was reading this article on how waste management was a multi-billion dollar industry and i remember thinking to myself like i was obviously born at the wrong time like i totally would have done waste and i think what i didn't realize is i was born at the right time but maybe in the wrong country um so when i came to ghana it's actually so when i came to ghana i was blessed to have saved enough money to not really necessarily have to work. So I call it, I had like a two to three year like hiatus, like where I was just enjoying Ghana. Um, and then of course money started running out. So we have to start looking at serious options. So, one thing I think I learned is that um, through all of my jobs and experiences, that I really wasn't meant to work for someone. Um, Even when I came, I had a brief stint at USAID, and after the third week, I realized, nope, this isn't for me. Um, So I knew I wasn't going to work for someone. So my first degree is communications. Um, So I started doing some public relations, and through that, I met a gentleman that actually um, was building from waste products. So. So I picked up and I started promoting what he was doing Um, and he was the most interesting guy because he's the first one that I guess sort of introduced me to the value chain for recyclables in Ghana. Um, And we were doing tours. He has a property that he's actually built from waste here in Accra. Um, So we are doing tours for school-age children. And every time the parents would always ask, you know, how can I recycle? So it got me thinking like, hey, these people want to recycle. Like, I mean, I think I know the value chain. I need to confirm it, but I think I know it. Um, So why not try to create a recycling program? Um, And through that was actually birthed Evolve. Uh, And even Evolve was quite interesting because my first big break in Evolve, so I created the concept, but of course I have no money to execute um, like most young people. So um, it just so happened, Environment 360, we have a signature event called Float Your Boat where kids build um, boats from plastic bottles and race them. Um, So I actually reached out to the Ghana uh, Yacht Association Association. They have like a boating association. And it just so happened the president was actually the MD of one of the largest water companies in Ghana. Wow! So he responds back like immediately. He's like, Hey, I'm interested in hearing your ideas, what you're doing. So we sit down, we have a conversation. He's like, all right, this is what we want to do. What do you want to do? So I basically pitched them all I was like, this is what I'm thinking of. This is what I want to do. He said, he thought about it. He was like, it sounds good. Like literally at the end of the meeting, there was <laughs> There's no hierarchy. It <laughs> was nothing. He was like, it sounds good. So like he starts directing people like next steps. <laughs> <laughs> so we developed the concept of the evolved bag I'm like okay I'm going to go to the markets I'm going to sell these bags and I remember when I first started like I told everyone and people like this is so stupid (laughs) people are like no one's going to one spend 20 Ghana CDs to purchase a segregation bag and they're like even if they give the 20 Ghana CDs nobody's going to bring the plastic bag well it goes to show there's always I mean uh, when you when you're pushed to do something it works out we actually collected around six Hundred uh, kg of plastic within the first six months. Nice. The MD was completely sold on the the project, and then started scaling. Um, and mind you, at this point, they actually had given us no money, so it was literally just like some in kind donations to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So I was at his office one day, and he called me in for a meeting. And he's like, you know what, Cordy? He was like, you've done such a great job with no money. It makes me think that if we give you some money, you're going to go a lot further. There you um, go. And this was actually <laughs> the first large donation um, to Environment 360. So they gave us some cash. They gave us a truck. Um, and I mean, he literally put us in the right place. Um, you know, I don't have a waste management background. I often tell people, if you don't believe in God, I'm like a firm case on that I mean 100% he sort of exists like you don't have to be an expert in what you do Um, you don't even have to know what you're doing but he'll put the right people um, in in your path and give you the right ideas Um, and I really think that that was the the sort of impetus for a lot of things that happened um, with Environment 360 that has really brought us to the place um, where we are today, because we've actually been in operation now for eight years, um, which is pretty strong considering, I mean, Ghana, this climate, this environment. I mean, so we're we're really proud of that accomplishment.
0: Wow, such an exciting story and very, very impactful, I'm sure. I mean, anyone listening, you should definitely dive into the show notes. We're going to put details of Environment 360. If you haven't heard of them, then I'm, I'm wondering really where you've been anyway. But um, you definitely should dive into the show notes to sort of get to know a little bit about your work because it's very, very promising and very impactful. Uh, but before we dive into the next question, I mean, throughout all this, there is a trend in what you're saying. You're very consistent with everything that you do and you're sort of very, very passionate, of course. And you try not to let, you know, a lot of things that could you know, show up as obstacles to prevent you from doing whatever you want to do. But I would like to ask you, what really brings you fulfillment?
1: To be honest, I really love what I do. Um, once again, I'm a firm believer. I think your experiences as a human are sort of, um, they definitely help you build up to, like you said, this thing that you're passionate about, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, Uh, I talked a lot about my father being the inspiration. It's because my father is actually the one with a very high educational level and business acumen. Um, My mother's family actually comes from Mississippi, which is the poorest state in the United States. My mother actually didn't get her college degree until she was 50. Um, My grandmother had no college degree. My aunt is illiterate. My grandmother actually cleaned houses her entire life. And I really believe in the power of one generation. Um, So when I look at where my grandmother was cleaning houses, being domestic help, to where her grandchildren are, my mother, once again, didn't have a college degree, but all of her children have multiple degrees, have done extremely well in their careers. And I think um, for me, because I've seen how providing opportunity and being in the right place at the right time can really change the trajectory of not just your life, but your family life right? So because I mainly work with women waste pickers, yes, I I definitely work with women waste pickers. I look at moving them up the value chain, but I'm not necessarily looking just at them, right? I'm looking like, what is going to be the future of their grandchildren? How is this going to impact their life when they start doing better? How is this going to inspire? Uh, I remember right before I moved to Ghana, Um, I went to visit my grandmother. Uh, At this point, she was dying of lung cancer. We were just sort of waiting for her to sort of phase out. She had decided to be at home. And I remember I went to go um, visit her. We're from a very, my mother's family is from a very, very small place called Sardis, Mississippi. Um, So if you're not from Mississippi, you have no clue where Sardis is. (laughs) Uh, But we're from a very small town where everyone is related. Uh, It's from Sardis. And uh, I was in Sardis visiting my grandma. And I remember she looked over at me and mind you, I'm named after my grandma as well. Oh. So she's always been big Courty and I'm little Courty. And I remember she looked over at me and she was like, you know, I'm so proud of you because you do things that I didn't even think like were possible. Yeah when I was a little girl. And, you know, I think that that has continued to really motivate me. It's not necessarily about the work I'm doing today, but it's how I'm potentially changing the trajectory of the next generation of someone's legacy or someone's family tree.
0: Wow. I love that. Really. I think that your grandma should be very, very excited to even see the things that you're doing right now and just how much impact you're making. And you made mention about women because I realized that you were mentioning a lot of um, um, women in your family and you've been very, very, very loud on on advocating for women in this particular space. I'd like to just ask you briefly that how does it look in in Ghana right now? I mean, women generally in the waste industry and what can we probably do to improve that?
1: Yeah, I think globally, women have a tendency not to work in the waste sector. Uh, There's a stat that says I think women are 2% of the global workforce. Uh, In Ghana, there's just a few of us that are actually uh, owners of of waste management companies. And you'll see that sometimes even though the woman is the face, she's actually not the owner, right? So it's owned by her uncle or her husband, but she really like it's just the face. So she's just there, she knows something, but it's not something that she's is overly into. Right. Yeah. Um, Even when you look at women in the value chain, World Economic Forum did a a study where the women make up almost 70% of the plastics value chain, 90% (laughs) still remain at the bottom in collecting and sorting. And this is really interesting because these are the hardest jobs, right? So the hardest job isn't negotiating with the middleman or doing the flaking. It's actually the, the collection and the sorting. And it's been interesting to me just to really see why women aren't really moving forward and i think a lot of times is that one this is a very male dominated industry yep. i'm very sure that if i probably didn't have a lot com- lot more confidence in myself i definitely would have fallen off the map by now
0: very true uh, you're
1: definitely i mean if i tell people you know i was telling one of my staffers today is that one thing that doesn't move me are threats, right? Because at this point, I've been threatened by so many waste management companies. Like people, they're going to sue me. I've been served papers by lawyers. Really? Like, I mean, people have tried to dog my organization, like- So I tell them one thing I'm never worried Uh about are like threats and rumors, right? Because in the end, the dust settles and I mean, everything comes out, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think one, women have a tendency, it's not just even the work is difficult, but even Finding your niche as a woman in this particular field is difficult, yeah. particularly when you come from a society, you're open operating in a place like Ghana, which is still very patriarchal. Uh, I was just laughing because if you look at most of the pictures of Environment 360 and um, the work we do, I'm typically the only woman in most pictures, right? Uh, And it's just such an interesting dynamic when you look at it that way. So I feel like women also aren't as comfortable having a hard ask. So I think for men, even when they're not doing everything right, they're very confident telling somebody I need $50,000, I need $100,000. And I think most women have a tendency to focus on in-kind donations and support. And I mean, this is even something I've had to work on through the years, right? I'm very sure that if I was a man early starting on, and this large water company only wanted to offer in kind support and put their name on everything, I probably would have said no, right? That's right. <laughs> but just starting, I was like, no, I need it. And like even I remember the only thing I don't want to mention them is because I remember in the end, um, when I did finally get the the kahunas to sort of stand up to them. Um, it had been like the program had been going on for three years. They were pushing it as like a landmark program. They literally were giving less than 5% of the operational costs of the program, but they were riding on it. Yes. And I remember like telling them, Hey, if you guys aren't going to put up the money then we need to end this partnership.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> and like, I think they thought like I, I was joking and I wrote them an official letter and ended it. And wow. it was so interesting um, because they asked asked about the name and I told them you guys can have the name like I mean I'll just move on and then of course not thinking ahead like they like I mean God has a plan for everything once again So they actually then started funding a competitor of mine. And because they were funding the competitor, they actually dropped the name and picked up a new name of a recycling program. And I mean, I just picked Evolve back up and like ran with it because it was like Tina Turner at that minute. Like, I don't need anything else but my name.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I'm loving this. (laughs)
1: So then I was able to keep the name Evolve. And then it just so happened later that year, Mesty recognized Evolve as the first successful plastic recycling program. So it was just like a win that they had dropped the name. I had picked it back up. So it was just like uh, one of those things. But I also, but once again, it comes back to not being able to, to ask for, have a hard ask, right? So I'm sure once again, I probably wouldn't have ended up in that situation. If I had just been able from the very beginning, clearly the partnership and the funds that were needed to actually run it, right? I also think that sometimes women get too caught up in charitable work. Um, It's something I consistently have to remind my staff about is that we can't do good work without money. So we're not spending money if there's not a return on investment. Um, Yes, technically we are an NGO. Also, um, I pride myself on us having self-sustaining features of our NGO, which has been are, which is probably why we've outlasted so many, is that there's certain activities that we're able to fund ourselves, like our Circular Innovation Hub. So because I always stress that whatever money we spend, there needs to be a a return on investment. I think this is also something that most women don't think about. They get so caught up in doing the good that they fail to realize that they need, need the money to do the good. As well, Uh, and I think really one of the large or one of the last things about being a woman that's really challenging is that you don't see a whole lot of women that are acting in this field. So I mean, it's not as if you can go to a woman and say, "Hey, what did you do? How did you learn?" And I think that that mentorship aspect sometimes um, can be 100% critical um, when entering into a field like this. That's such a rapidly changing field, right?
0: Yeah. Have you thought of writing a book?
1: <laughs> so many times, but I feel like I don't have that much to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you probably just have to get someone, you know, writing it, and you you just have to say just just keep talking honestly. Just an because... audio
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> probably <laughs> because there is there is a lot. I mean, whilst you're talking, my mind is just on like. I mean, this is this is real passion, right? Because a lot of people in this in in this space, especially as you were talking about the limitations for um, women and some of the things that are happening. I mean, it's a very male-dominated um, industry, and not just this industry. I think it applies to other industries, of course. And I've I've listened to a lot of. Um, uh, places where you have given um, speech or joined a discussion or anything like that and I always see you trying to find a way to advocate for women and sort of um, tell people or just be that example I think you definitely do have a lot to say not just about that but also even what we just uh, discussed right now about your childhood experience and, and all that I, I know there's definitely a lot uh, to write
1: well,
0: you, David. <laughs> but really thank you so so much for sharing the story with us hi there just a quick one if you find our conversations worth listening why don't you share them with your friends and connections please help us reach more and new listeners by leaving a review commenting or rating us on any platform where you get your podcast We can't wait to hear your thoughts and ideas so share them with us via a social media platform or email. Find more details in the show notes. Now let's get back into today's conversation. I'd like us to dive a little bit more into what Environment 360 is doing and all the wings that are attached to it. But before that, I'm sure that there is, there's a huge problem in Ghana right now. Um, and I think waste management, is it's really, really a huge problem. And there are so many things that are entangled to this, like this annual floods that we see in the country from year to year. And there are so many diseases that are attached to this. But then there is one thing that I would like to ask you about, you know, some of the reasons why we cannot um, really manage our waste very well. One of them is definitely the collection. Uh, we don't have, you know, proper segregation uh, systems and all that. But then there is another issue that is, has become sort of part of the culture. And I know you a little bit, you are loud about this as well, about human beings, I mean, our behavior of littering um how has this contributed to you know the waste pollution that we have in Ghana and why should we really consider that as a very important thing to tackle
1: so one i think that um responsible handling of waste or sustainable handling of waste is critical uh particularly when you look at Ghana's infrastructure uh we only have two engineered landfills uh in the country which essentially means that waste being disposed of in other places is definitely leaching uh, not only into the ground, but water supply uh, as well. Uh, So these are are critical things that we need to look at. Uh, Two, we have to realize that we have a high prevalence of environmental diseases, which are 100% preventable, uh, such as typhoid, cholera, malaria. Uh, All of these are directly uh, related to how you are keeping your environment and the cleanliness of your environment uh and then three i think it's also critical because nobody wants to live in a dirty place right uh with ghana really pushing tourism and becoming the gateway of west africa again and having this uh, year of return and then beyond the return no one wants to come to a country that looks like um, a dustbin Um, it kills tourism Uh, particularly when you're paying high costs and then you don't feel like you're getting what's in return, right? Because we also know that Ghana is one of the most expensive countries to visit. So imagine spending $3,000 to get here and go to the beach and you realize you can't even get in the water because it's plastic bags everywhere, right? Yeah. That's not someplace I want to take my money in and spend. Um, you know, I think that it's been really interesting to to always have this talk about you know, about how it's embedded in in the culture and people don't want to do better. But I actually think it's the opposite. I think that waste management companies have failed to show the capacity to do uh, better. I think a large part of it is because we have a monopoly in waste management and it's a highly inefficient monopoly. So I think that it would be different if it was super efficient when no one would mind, but it's a highly inefficient monopoly um, where money is often lost in the system. Um, It's not subsidized by government or taxpayer money. So essentially you're expecting waste collectors to also collect uh, their own fees, which is almost unheard of because they're not bill collectors, right? They're waste service providers. Uh, And I think some of these uh, inherent glitches make it really difficult for them to pick up. So I don't think is that citizens litter everywhere and they're not willing to pick up. I think that we don't have a business model that's attractive for people to patron, and we don't have proper service providers that can provide consistent and reliable service.
0: Well, you raise really, really important points in the, in this kind of solutions, or in this kind of points that you raise, and I think that, of course, the government hasn't done too much about, you know, trying to solve that part of it, making the waste management industry sort of Um, more attractive for even the youth to sort of indulge in. I think maybe, of course, the private sector is doing well at this moment because there are quite a number of um, recycling industries or recycling um, teams coming together. And for sure, Environment 360, we cannot definitely talk about um, this recycling and waste management in Ghana without uh, mentioning your name. And you have done a lot, considering even your recent secular uh, innovation hub, Evolve, and all that. We've talked about the problems, right? Could you tell us what you are doing um, with Environment 360?
1: Yeah. So, Environment 360, we actually started off in school programs, as mentioned. Um, over the years, we basically have been known as the, the creator of recycling programs. Um, so not only corporate community schemes, but community schemes uh, as well. Uh, in fact, due to our success, we were actually tapped um, in 2017 um, by the Danone Ecosystem Fund Foundation to um, be the implementing partner for Pickett, which is the first waste picker-led sorting center in Ghana. We're actually entering into phase two of Pickett now. Um, adding some more value addition um, to the waste pickers in Tema Newtown um, to help increase the amount of plastic collected from that area. Um, We've also run several business or test cases uh, for the federal German state of North Rhine-Westphalia through GIZ to better understand what are the incentive models that work really well for the informal sector, uh, how can you incorporate private sector, uh, be, be it either in kind or cash, in the development of collection points as well as engagement of local municipal assemblies to better understand what they think their role should be. This is actually uh, running these, these test models the past three years in both Accra and Kumasi, is actually what led us to create the Circular Innovation Hub. What we realized from the data is that we had women whose numbers were undoubtedly increasing over the three years. They had definitely gotten better at teamwork, at identification of plastic, at sorting by colors, taking off the lids. But what we realized is that we weren't really seeing a huge jump in their income, particularly as their team members grow. And we had to basically come to the conclusion is that basically you can't raise incomes just off of collection. Once again, we could have continued on the path and, and I mean, just fundraise to do collection points and um, c- capacity building because, you know, these are hot spaces for for NGOs right now. But instead, what we decided to do is how can we really maximize that impact and move people up the value chain? And what we developed was the Circular Innovation Hub, which essentially seeks to give community members technical and practical skills that they can use to actually develop second-life products from various waste streams found in their communities. Because we've been dealing in plastic, We actually, our first project, we bought in a modular recycling technology from Europe uh, in which we trained women to uh, use the the lid of the PET to actually make a variety of products. Our first product we're launching in a few weeks. um, It's called the Ghana Waste Beads. It's a traditional bead that is actually made from 100% recycled plastic. So plastic picked from the streets of Accra, shredded, and then the women waste pickers that we've trained to operate the machine, then turn it into a second life product, and then they're making jewelry. Um, this has caused a, a 200% increase, even when you look at the women we've hired. These women, on average, were making 300 Ghana CDs per month. Now they're making 800 Ghana CDs per month, in addition to the money that they're getting for their collection. So it's really sort of changed the trajectory of um, some of the women that we're working with. Which is what we're seeking to do Um, here at the Circular Innovation Hub. Also, we recently just launched our Green Generation Ambassadors Program, which is a training program for JHSH students in Dodoa. So between 12 and 16, where we teach them how to take place, um, take part in the circular economy And how they can actually um, position themselves, get jobs, internships, opportunities, just to really help uh, circularity in rural communities as well. We think that the circular innovation hub is, is quite important because typically when we talk about circular economy, it's a very Eurocentric or westernized view, right? So it's let's collect the plastic. Let's make it into some high-end product that's super expensive that consumers are willing to pay because we put the word sustainable or recycled on it. And I think what we have to realize is that circular economy in Africa may be completely different than what it is in the West. And now Environment 360 really has that special focus in on how can we promote the African version or vision of circular economy versus that westernized vision of circular economy.
0: I really, really love the work that you're doing. And I think uh, it's making a really, really big impact in the environment and in the society. I really hope that, you know, the necessary and uh, the right stakeholders will come and support this vision, um, especially those new projects that you're doing with the Circular Innovation Hub and the new products that is coming out definitely needs to be purchased on all platforms and we could use that way to sort of support you um, in one way or the other but then with all these things that you're saying about your activities you make it sound so so good are there any challenges that you are facing and um, probably how could you know people or necessary stakeholders sort of supports to make this a little bit of less of a burden for you
1: So I think that that's a great question. I think that there are a lot of challenges, particularly when you're doing something new, right? One thing I say is that I think we have such a great vision for Environment 360, but sometimes getting that expertise in is something else. Right now with the Circular Innovation Hub, we're at a point where we have a high need for technical and chemical expertise really helping us understand how to processing different uh, package materials, different packaging into a usable form, developing these open source modular recycling technologies that can be easily scaled and used throughout West Africa and then uh, created and sold at a very affordable price so that we're not focused on creating five recyclers, but we're focused on creating 5,000 recyclers. I think something else that Uh, We always, I mean, struggle with this, I mean, human talent. And I think that human capital, of course, particularly when you're in a rapid growth phase, is always a really critical component. I think a lot of people want to be associated with the winning team, but not a lot of people want to be put in the work that it takes to win. Uh, And I think that that's a really critical um, component. Um, Fortunately, we've gotten some money for some capacity building, but we're always looking for mentors, other peers that we can link our staff up with so that they can also learn at a very rapid rate as well. Because it's not always just about the, the hard skills that you need. Sometimes it's about soft skills, right? Sometimes it's about being able to have a different perspective on your thoughts and training yourself to think a different way um, than how you've been, been trained to think. Uh, I think some of the other challenges and things we need at this point are really we're just looking at partnerships. How can we isolate people that either one want to source the products we're currently creating um, from the hub and they can add their own value to them. So for instance, the Ghana waste beads, it's not our intention to create our own jewelry. We're more interested in selling the beads out in bulk and letting people um, make those or use those beads in the way that they have their own creative talent. So if it's jewelry, if it's clothing, Um, If it's, uh, you know, accessories, eyeglass holders, whatever it is, if you're doing something that uses a traditional bead, are you willing to replace that with a Ghana waist bead and then buy in bulk? Uh, It's the same. We also make buttons. It's the same with designers. Are you willing to purchase buttons that are a little bit more expensive but are made from local recycled plastic that help keep Accra clean and motivate women waste pickers? We're also looking for companies that want to, to work with us to develop a product for them. So, sort of like a maker shop. So, saying, hey, I have this design. Um, We want to work with the hub to develop this from recycled plastic and then going through the the prototyping process until we can actually have um, a final product. So this is what we're actually seeking for um, at this particular time.
0: Nice. So if you're listening to this and you think that you fall in any of these areas where you could sort of give some support in terms of partnerships, training, skills, mentorship, Definitely dive into the show notes. All links to um Cody and her group is gonna be in the show notes. So just dive into that and get in touch and let's support this amazing um uh mission so that we can help to make Accra and Ghana you know a better place to live. Um Cody, all the things that you're mentioning with um so far in the last few minutes has to do with sort of collecting waste and sort of recycling it and uh, you know, getting finding a new purpose for it. And I really like it that you're sort of blocking all the ends of this chain so that sort of we could get the the system, the the materials back into the system as as resources. But do you think that on a larger scale, the recycling space is being sort of a sustainable solution? And if you see any loop of holes in there, how can we make the industry more effective?
1: David, I think that's a magnificent question that we really don't think about enough. I don't think our recycling space in Ghana is sustainable. As mentioned, we ran several test cases uh, with the German federal state of North Rhine-Westphalia, and what we realized in each one is that the moment you have to start carrying transportation, um, renting facilities, salaries, there's not enough money for you to actually be able to cover. I think this is why most of our collectors are in a consistent fundraising mode, right? So everybody's looking for partners, everybody's going after the grants from the various development agencies in order to really be able to, to solidify or to continue getting running capital for their organization. But sometimes I've recently started having to talk with some funders, is I think funders need to take a step back. When you look at the amount of money that's been invested within the collection space, it's been probably near one million dollars. If this business was sustainable, would we have? Would we need to invest that much in different collectors over a four or five year period? And they're still fundraising. I think what we need to realize is that we're not focusing enough on the other ends of the value chain. We're not looking at redesign. We're not looking at repurposing. We're not looking at innovation. One of the huge things that particularly COVID showed us is that we have a bottleneck with so few buyers. Essentially, what happens is that the moment there's a breakdown with a buyer, you have a whole breakdown with the collection value chain. So um, because most of our buyers are not adding value to uh, uh, what they are actually collecting, it also minimizes what they can pay. I think that funders, donors, and individuals that are in a position to create projects need to actually take a step back. They need to start focusing more on technology, on innovation, and really how can maybe we look at redesign
0: well wow. i I really think that I would like you to hit that thing again, because I think what you just mentioned is very, very important that it's one loophole that we find in in this space. I see a lot of people trying to get into the recycling or generally people just have the idea that okay, let's just collect them and then break them into pieces and probably sell them elsewhere or something like that but then there is there hasn't been a lot of efforts into you know turning them back into something valuable that could get back into um, the system because that sort of helps, you know, the recycling companies to sort of also make money because I I realized that recycling could be a good solution, but then it's very, it it takes a lot of money in terms of energy, transportation, and even the people that you employ, of course, to uh, collect the waste for you. So I think definitely this should be something that we should speak more about, and uh, see how we can make that system um, more effective. Now I'm gonna put it in a very uncomfortable situation <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> that um, we know that, I mean, collectively, the waste management system in Ghana, you mentioned earlier that um, it's not just about the behavioral um, um, approach or um, issues or something cultural, but then the system has not you know, made it attractive for people to even dive into it. There are no, you know, facilities or government policies to even make working in this space more comfortable. So if you were put in charge just for a minute, right, what are some of the changes you're going to make in this space?
1: So one, I'm definitely going to break any monopoly that there there is. Uh, 100%. uh, I think that we have a lot of really brilliant individuals that just aren't getting a chance because they're not in the monopoly ring. Um, so I think 100% we're going to to learn to break the monopoly. I think the second thing that I would really do is really give the informal sector a little bit more attention and see how they could actually uh, really work together and really pull. I think also there has to be the development of local technologies So once again, I feel the collection levels are great, but there's no need to expand collection if you don't have uh, an end product. One of the things that I'm really concerned with uh, with with the green revolution in Africa is that as you know, Africa has missed out on the industrial revolution and essentially we just export raw materials. If we're not careful, it's going to be the same thing with the green revolution, right? Um, Essentially, we'll just be exporting the raw material, which is in this case, the plastic, it can actually even be solar cells. Um, So if we're not careful, Africa is actually not going to have the opportunity to fully harness the green economy. With the fastest growing population and the highest youth population, um, it would really be a tragedy if we allowed this opportunity to go. So I would probably also um, look at more uh, investment programs and really getting youth prepared to actually work at higher level jobs of the the green economy um, versus just in in collection and waste management.
0: Wow. Really important points over there. Um, if if there is anyone, you know, sort of now wanting to dive into the space or probably wants to join Environment 360 or wants to know more about the things that you are, you are talking about, do we have any communities in Ghana where someone like that could start from or do we have like platforms where such conversations are going or you probably have maybe a plans of, you know, starting a community like this?
1: Yeah, so Dodoi is actually going to be our model community, um, which yes. is why we we've launched the, the Green Generation ambassadors. Uh we think it's important for people to also realize that Accra is not Ghana. Um, we have more rural areas and urbanized areas. So while we're rushing to, to create solutions only for urbanized areas, we don't want to leave out rural areas, particularly if that opportunity can create jobs that stop an influx of individuals moving into urban areas. So for us personally, Dodowa is definitely going to be our model community. Um, If you're in and around Dodoa and want to support, we would absolutely love to have you on board. We have a fabulous hub manager, um, Padiki Awote. Um, Padiki is more than easy to reach. Um, You can always email her at info um, at environment360gh.org. Uh, I think for platforms, I think there's so many green platforms, Environment 360 hasn't felt the need to create one. Uh, I mean, once again, you have your your own personal chat with Live Green. There's the eco-conscious citizens of Ghana. Um, GAYO has a youth group. Ghana Youth Environmental Movement has a youth group. So what we try to do is work in tandem with them, Um, but we're more focused in on uh, the Dodowa community and how to empower those citizens and raise youth that are focused on the green economy, creating green opportunities for themselves locally.
0: Wow. Uh, Thank you so much, Cody, for even making time for Uh, this conversation I've really learned a lot from some of the things that um, you mentioned today and I think that is going to be worth very worth listening to um, our community of listeners here but before we let you go I'd like to ask you last two questions about what does sustainability mean to you and what are you generally doing to contribute to that meaning? Well,
1: sustainability means to me that people essentially are able to not only own the activities, but finance the activities that they're doing, like it's worthwhile doing independently, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things I say is we spend so much talking about formalizing the informal sector, but I tell people if people were making money in it, it would naturally formalize, right? Uh, We need to focus in on how can people actually make money from it? For me, To create sustainability, it 100% has to be practical, we need to be giving the the appropriate technical skills, and we need to make sure that it's a viable, decent income, and not something just so we can check the box of funders, uh, that yes, we created a job, but it's a low paying job. Uh, Or yes, we're collecting more, um, but the people aren't being impacted or the community isn't seeing a reduction in the visibility of plastic waste. So this is for me at the heart of sustainability is ensuring that the people are doing better, not only in their environment, but economically as well.
0: Wow, I I I love exactly what you said. And honestly, um, you made mention about um, the informal sector, and um, it made me think about something that I wanted to ask earlier, but I think I, I, I skipped it. Um, do you think we have done enough with education when it comes to this space?
1: Absolutely not. I still think most people have a negative perception of informal sector. I still think most informal sector workers are a little bit embarrassed by the work that they do. Uh, I think that there definitely needs to be more attempts and strides for education and visibility of informal sector workers. This is why one of the, the key things, something else we're doing at the Circular Innovation Hub is creating circular experiences for communities and corporations. So we actually have a gallery that people can run out with different activities. And in all of our activities, you actually get to engage with these women and hear their story and understand more about them and why they're so important to the waste value chain. So I think that we need to to create a platform where that exchange can actually take place so that we can start putting a face with these informal sector workers, particularly community waste pickers, which are mainly women, um, which could be your aunt, your cousin, your mother, um, so either grandmother. So I think that we have to start personalizing it more and move away from the fact that the informal sector are these very hard guys, that are working on the landfill um, and are dirty all the time and are using the money to, to get high or, or buy alcohol.
0: Wow. This, this is a more reason why you should definitely consider writing a book because every minute of this conversation has really, really been insightful. And you shared really important points that I think could be like, you know, new ideas for people to dive into this space and want to say that thank you so much for making time. I really know that you're very busy and uh, for making time for this uh, conversation. I really, really appreciate it. And I enjoyed every bit of it. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Thank you so much for the invite. And sorry, it took us so long, but I've enjoyed my time with you today.
0: (laughs) This was amazing. Hey there. Thank you so much for sticking to the end of this episode. Now there is a call to action. So why don't you engage with our community of green charters on our social media platforms? Find more details and links in the show notes. Get involved with the podcast by emailing us at glcpodcast at echoametsolutions.com or DM via our social media platforms. We cannot do the same things expecting different results. The urgency of climate change demands actions now and not in 2050. So, dear Green Chatters, see you on the next episode and remember, live green.